On today's show, we talk with adventurer-turned-business owner James Kastrician, who's tackled some rather big challenges. One in particular had him going a little cray-cray. I was seeing these massive babies, these six-foot-five babies in diapers. So imagine someone like yourself, Timbo, about your kind of size, <laughs> but a baby version of you in uh, diapers, drinking out of a milk bottle and talking yes. to me. It's the award-winning small business, big marketing show, thanks to American Express. Well, I say welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Timbo and welcome back to your weekly dose of business goodness. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, but you, infinitely more importantly, you're a motivated business owner and you're ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it deserves to be. Today's rather large show, episode 430 in fact, is made exclusively possible thanks to our mates at American Express to see how your business expenses can reward you. After the show, Google Amex Business. That is Amex Business. Now, today we're joined by adventurer-turned-business owner, James Kastrician, who's risked his life not once, but twice. Firstly, paddling from Australia to New Zealand, and then walking to the South Pole, as you do. I give some sage advice to listener Suman, who somewhat desperately, I must say, asks me if he should give up and sell his cafe. And this week's Jingle of the Week, well, not so much a jingle, (laughs) more a Greek bloke passionately suggesting we buy his furniture on TV in Greek. Grand style, grand style, grand style. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Okay, let's meet James Castrician, who I met recently at a conference that I was emceeing in Vietnam and was pretty chuffed when he came up after his keynote, which was very, very good, by the way, to tell me he's a big fan of this show. So I said, you should come on this show. I can confidently say James is the bravest guest we have ever had on the show. Put it this way, he and his mate Jonesy have paddled from Australia to New Zealand and walked to the South Pole. Now, what's that got to do with your business I hear you very intelligently ask, everything, absolutely everything, and then some. You're about to be masterclassed in how to take calculated risks, how to work closely with others, how to attract sponsors who love what you're about, and how to build a business off the back of your passion. I started off by asking James, because he's the best person to do it, to explain his two madcap adventures. Yeah, so back in 2008, alongside my best mate, Jonesy, we uh, we took on the Tasman Sea. The Tasman Sea between Australia and New Zealand had never been crossed in a kayak before, and there'd been a number of attempts, and tragically, six months before our departure, a fellow kayaker was actually lost out at sea. And after four years of preparation and planning and just throwing in ourselves 100% at the project, we found ourselves out there on the Tasman Sea pushing to be the first people to cross the Tasman. And after 62 days and 3,318 kilometres, we finally arrived in on the shore of New Zealand. And it really was the most incredible, incredible journey. Uh, you know, in, at one point, we had sharks coming up and rubbing themselves up against the kayak. And i got to say, when you go to sleep and you're in a cabin 
It's no bigger than about a coffin and a half stacked on top of each other, sleeping in there with your best mate and having a shark rubbing itself up next to you. It's quite an <laughs> intimate moment. <laughs> well, and, and probably what have you got? A couple of mil of fiberglass or something yeah, between you and the Yeah, about 10 mil of fiberglass. Oh, so, yeah, about one centimeter of fiberglass. And at one point, we got slammed by this storm where the seas were up at 12, 13 meters. Wind was blowing up above 100 kilometers an hour. And uh, for f- almost four days, we were stuck in that storm. Uh, and we went absolutely crazy in there. Um, we were strapped to the cabin floor, riding up and down these monsters of water. Wow. There was nothing we t- could do. We just had to ride the thing out. Explain, and, Craig, uh, what's crazy mean? What were, were you panicking? Were you crying? Were you screaming? Were you hugging each other? Had you um, resolved that you were going to die in that, in that night? I, I, how crazy did you go? So about 48 hours into the storm, the two of us were hallucinating quite badly. Um, So for me, it's quite visual. And I was seeing these massive babies, these six foot five babies in diapers. So imagine someone like yourself, Timbo, about your kind of size, but a baby version of you in diapers, drinking out of a milk bottle and talking to me. Jonesy was experiencing more sensory kind of um, uh, hallucinations. So he felt people touching him or trying to pick things up out of his hand. And uh, so that's, I guess, what I describe as mm-hmm. crazy. Um, yeah, we, there was no escaping. No one was coming to get us. We were out there on our own and we just had to push through. We always knew at the end of the day, Lot 41, our kayak, would get through the storm. It was just a matter of whether we could too. I've got to work very hard, James, during this interview to remember that this is a business show. But uh, you know, in you describing these adventures, I, I'm going to have to work very hard at not spending the next four hours talking to some crazy adventurers about all the wacky questions that I and I'm sure my audience have. So, anyway, buddy, keep telling us about the kayaking adventure, and then we'll move on to the next one. I promise, listeners, we will get to business. But this is fascinating stuff. Yeah, sure. And so about 17 days into the journey, we were halfway across the Tasman. We were feeling super confident. We were incredibly excited by our progress. And then when we got hit by that storm, it pushed us into this big circular whirlpool in the middle of the Tasman Sea. And for two weeks, we went round and round in circles in the middle of the Tasman. Uh, We got to a point where we knew the current boundary was only 20 kilometres away from our furthest east position. And we'd push hard through the day. We'd drift back through the night. And I guess if we kept on employing that approach that we'd been trying to employ to get out of that thing of working harder through it, and I guess a lot of small businesses can relate to this, you know, 10 years later, we'd still be out there doing donuts in the middle of the Tasman Sea. (laughs) You know, we had to adapt to what was going on around us. We had to adapt to the environment. And we ended up paddling 150 kilometres back towards Australia to get out of this big circular whirlpool in the Tasman. And if we didn't work with the conditions, yeah, as I said, we'd still be out there stuck in the middle. What do you do in those situations? I mean, 150 kilometres backwards, you know, facing death in these storms, you've got sharks. In those situations, how do you manage your mindset? I always felt that my mindset was always, and my mindset and Jonesy's mindset was the weakest link on board that kayak. And so through years and years of training and small trips leading up to bigger trips, leading up to bigger trips, the best training we could have done to prepare us for the Tasman crossing was all those trips that we we put together. And we also were put through a whole lot of food and sleep deprivation training from the Australian Army. And in a controlled environment, I guess, you know, this is something very applicable to a lot of businesses. Before you launch a product or if you launch an offering, 
it's so important in a controlled environment to test things as rigorously as you can test them. And so that's what we've got the Australian Army to do. They pushed us to that point of hallucination collapse. And so we knew how our bodies responded to that stress. So when we were out there, and I'm seeing Timbo's um, in diapers, drinking out of a milk bottle, and Jonesy's feeling people and um, you know forces pulling his paddle out of his hand, yeah. uh, we knew what was going on, and we, we had some control of the situation. It just didn't come out of left field. I have seen a photo of you and Jonesy back in high school days. You do not look, and I'm being very judgmental here, you do not look like the type of blokes who would go through such rigorous training and and complete such incredible adventures. What what? And maybe I'm wrong, but I think the way you presented that photo at the talk I saw you give, there was a bit of a smile on your face. What changed in from high school to being an adult? Look, we were two very insecure, unsure kids. Uh, you know, we did all the things we were meant to do in high school. You know, we, we played our sport. We did reasonable at school. I started life uh, down the path of commerce and then chartered accountancy. And it was all the things we were meant to be doing, but we just did not fit into that life. It just didn't feel right. It felt foreign to us. And, you know, I'd often get back from a night out with mates um, out in the city or, you know, having beers and, you know, with people. And I'd be like, what's wrong with me? I just didn't mm -hmm. enjoy that. Like, I just want to be in nature. And so it, adventure always called me. And right from those early 20s, I started, you know, just doing overnight bushwalks with my mates. And that evolved to slightly bigger trips. And we paddled down the length of the Murray and across Bass Strait in a kayak. And so these trips started to get bigger. And it was through those expeditions that I really started to build myself um, and the confidence in myself as a, as a young adult. I think you touched on something there, James, which is you and you luckily realised and had the courage to act on something at a pretty early age, which was whatever you were doing in your life wasn't floating your boat, excuse the pun, but you, there was something more. Uh, I think many people. Many, many people think that but don't have the courage. They might feel it's too late in life uh, to, make that, to make that shift. What do you say to them? Look, that was by far the most daunting, difficult step that I took in the, in the last 15 years. And, in fact, I come from an incredibly traditional family, a Greek family. So, you know, education and career are very, very important in, in the family. Um, you know, my, my grandparents... Uh, were basically subsistent farmers. And so coming to Australia and having this opportunity to get educated and have a proper career was what life was all about. So to, to front up to mum and dad and say, hey, mum, dad, thank you for investing everything you've done and providing everything you have for the last 20 years. I'm now going to turn my back on all that and try and paddle across the Tasman Sea with my best mate. Um, yeah, it, that was by far the most difficult thing that I had to do. But taking that first step is so, so important. Thanks to American Express, we're chatting with crazy adventurer turned business owner, James Kostrician. We in life, in business, commit to things all the time, whether it be committing to drive around the corner and get some milk or committing to a business deal of some magnitude. You committed to at least two adventures of which people had died previously trying. What does true commitment feel like? It's incredibly lonely, but at the same time, 100% intoxicating as well. To just be so 100% you know, committed and determined on a particular objective, 
everything falls by the wayside. And, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing at times too. In some ways, you're a bit like a junkie in that, uh, you know, we found ourselves at a point where we turn our back on our family and friends. We didn't have time for girlfriends. We didn't have time for mates. Like if you, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if we weren't working on the project, there was something wrong. And uh, look, it's it's not a healthy existence. And in a lot mm. of ways, you know, to operate at, in business at that absolute elite level or you whether you want, want to be an Olympic athlete, sometimes in life you go through phase where you need to give it 100% of everything you've got and yeah, parts of your life do fall by the wayside. You, you must have pissed a lot of people off in, in committing, in really leaning in and going, guys, this is what I and my mate Jonesy are into. You're either in or you're out. Again, that, that's a strong force to have to deal with. How did you deal with it? Look, probably the, the the biggest low point of my life came in uh, end of 2006. We were meant to leave a year earlier than we actually did. So we'd, we'd committed to this project, we'd raised the funding, we trained hard, and the day we put our kayak on the water was the day our dreams were going to be realised, everything was going to fall into place, and then we were going to pull off this crossing. Well, we put it in the water and the entire kayak flopped over onto its side. So we had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of sponsorship investment. We had media deals. We had everything lined up, good to go. And we literally had a kayak that would not float and sit yeah. upright. Um, and uh, at that point, that's when Andrew McCauley also disappeared and everything just felt like it wasn't going to happen. Um, and at that point, we'd alienated ourselves from all, as I said, from our yeah. family, from our friends, and we just felt so alone. The only thing that really pulled us through at that moment was was the bond between two very good friends and um yeah we were the only one that was seeing that yes we can pull this off yes we need to stay patient and we just need to keep on pushing we need to plug plug away and we'll get there i, w I want to talk about how you work with someone so closely and your mate jonesy uh but um t to both come to an agreement on something so deeply committed i suppose at the same time and not have one of you wavering and the other one going, come on, come on, we're going to do it. Like, was it just luck of timing that you were both in or did one of you have to bully the other or what, what did that look like? Yeah, look, it definitely brought out a lot of tension in us. Uh, I'm a very intense, very driven individual. Um, Jonesy is uh, a little bit more relaxed. <laughs> Lives up to his name. Hey, Jonesy. Yeah. Josie, mate, let's sit down, let's catch up, mate. He's, a, he's an awesome guy and he's just a lot more relaxed. And so when I think we needed that balance, that kind of yin and yang to pull this thing off. And at times I was probably a bit too intense. Uh, but at the same time, if we were in Jonesy's gear, we probably wouldn't have got the project off the ground or happening either. So it required both those energies to pull off this thing. I guess we came from a background of two friends approaching this objective together mm. rather than two professional adventurers achieving an objective and when two friends and two mates that have been so close since the age of 15 um you just know that person so so deeply and so well um you're just willing to go to the end of the earth for that person you've done your, your australia to new zealand crossing james you then embark on a next adventure explain that one yeah look ever since i was a kid i was never really interested in fiction and reading about Frodo Baggins, Harry Potter and the like, I was always fascinated about Antarctica. And I guess coming back from the Tasman Sea and realising that the ocean probably wasn't my calling given that for 62 days I was pretty much seasick the entire time. Right. <laughs> really? 100%. 100%. It was, uh, yeah, 
I, I, 99% of the population gets their sea legs out there on the ocean. I'm part of that 1% that don't. <laughs> right. And so out there on the Tasman, I was taking two chemotherapy patients, two tablets a day they give to chemotherapy patients. So they were $40 a tablet. I was acupuncturing myself. I was doing hypnotherapy. I was doing a whole lot of stuff just to make life bearable. Oh. So with that in mind, I thought probably another ocean crossing is not where I'm meant to no. go, but I really do want to push myself. I want to experience a region in the world that I've only ever dreamt about. I want to see what I'm capable of. Um, let's head down to Antarctica and let's see if we can pull off something big down there. And what was that? No one had ever skied from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back unsupported. So a distance of over 2,200 kilometres carrying all your own food, all your own provisions, everything you need to survive for three months down in Antarctica. There'd been uh, five attempts in the prior 12 years uh, by adventurers all over the planet. No one had ever been able to turn their back on the pole. And Jones and I thought, right, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's throw everything we've got to try to make this project happen. And that's exactly what we did. Of course you did. Of course you did. Because you'd be growing up in the snow, hadn't you? And, um, you know, it was second nature to just go skiing to school, right? Uh, I'd like to say so. <laughs> Jonesy grew up in Indonesia, myself in Sydney, and the two of us, 18 months before the project, had never put cross-country skis on our feet for the first time. So the learning curve was quite steep, and I guess that's part of the attraction of these projects for us. It's to learn, to grow, to experience new things, and that's exactly what Antarctica taught us. Paint, paint the picture of when you're out in the middle of Antarctica. What's that look like? I'm guessing white. White, white, and more white. So for those uh, listeners that have seen Happy Feet with all those lovely penguins and seals <laughs> and fluffy animals, they all hang around the coast. None of them come into the interior of Antarctica. And in the, the 90 days we were down there, we got about – we saw one bird in 90 days wow. um, the entire time. So there was no life. No maggots? No maccas. I, I was told that there was going to be one at the South Pole, and that's the whole reason we were skiing down there. But unfortunately, there was no maccas. And it was an unsupported journey as well, so we couldn't take any. We wouldn't have been able to buy anything if we did. But uh, uh, there is nothing exists. It is always, always windy, always blowing at 50 kilometres an hour. Uh, you cannot escape it. And then every now and then a storm comes through where you get belted. Crevices. Uh, well, I guess that would be the biggest danger, falling down a, a what a, a kilometre crevice. Crevasses are yeah, crevasses. Yeah, they're big. They're big problems. Considering we couldn't afford the weight of having crevasse rescue gear with us, so every bridge and snow bridge we crossed over had to be the right decision every time. Uh, unfortunately, on a few occasions we did pop through, and we uh, we were lucky to be pulled up by the weight of our heavy sleds. Mm -hmm. uh, so crevasses are a big problem. It's the cold that's the big, the biggest issue down there. Now down in Antarctica, there's something called the 30 rule. If it's sitting at minus 30 degrees Celsius and the wind's blowing at 30 kilometres an hour, if you have any exposed flesh or skin, you get frostbite within 30 seconds. So it yeah, makes going to the bathroom, <laughs> setting up a tent quite challenging. So every system, every process had to be 100% dialed the minute we hit our, found ourselves down there, given that in the first month the average temperature was about minus 40 degrees Celsius. I got uh, I got castigated the other day at this conference that I was emceeing at which you were speaking, and my first question to you when I came back on stage for Q&A was, how did you go to the toilet? I th in fact, I think I was a bit more crass than that. I said, how did you do poo? But, you know, I mean, these are, these are important questions. How, it, it, with the 30 rule applying, how do you relieve yourself? Uh, clearly, Look, if anyone wants to give it a go, I, I'll say – 
Uh, go and get, go to the kitchen tonight. Get a yes. couple of oven mitts. Put them on your hand. <laughs> And just think about that 30-second rule. So just try and do the whole process with two oven mitts on your hands because you can't, can't take your gloves off. Yeah. And unfortunately, we could only have two pieces of toilet paper per person per day. So with that oh, much no. information, I'll send that challenge out to the listeners and oh, uh, let's see what comes back to you. That, <laughs> that is extraordinary. Again, wanting to get into the business learnings, but there's an extraordinary part of this story of, of, of your, your, your little wander down to Antarctica and back. Um, the fellow who you met at the backpacker's just the night prior to leaving. Do you want to just tell that story? Yeah, so uh, we were down in South America, Punta Arenas, waiting for the weather to clear up to head down to Antarctica. And uh, we're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Then into our hostel room burst a six-foot-three tall blonde Norwegian uh, who was basically a polar terminator. <laughs> this guy was absolutely incredible. And he, he announced to us that, hey, guys, I'm also down in Antarctica this season and I'm going to be trying to pull off the same thing. And uh, Jones and I were absolutely devastated. You know, he was a polar guide. He crossed ice caps all around the world. He climbed Everest, other 8,000-metre peaks. Uh, you know, he's Norwegian, so he's, you know, born with skis yeah. on his feet. And you had these two Teletubbies from Australia that had just learned how to ski and had no <laughs> idea what we were really doing. And so we felt very much out of our comfort zone. Well, and so he took off. You kind of, uh, would it be fair to say that you said, okay, Jonesy, look, we're not going to be the first to complete this, but we're going to complete it. What happened? Uh, we have a little bit more youthful naivety than that, Tim. Uh, uh, we were like, no, we're going to take on this bastard. We, we're going to give him a red hot shot. We're going to see what we can do here. And so we pushed hard in those first few weeks and we did actually get ahead of him and we were pretty proud of how we were doing and how we were progressing. The weather conditions in those first month were absolutely horrendous. We had, well, I had a breakdown on day 30 where I had this incredibly painful skin infection pop up um, on, on my groin um, and on my inside of my legs. We had to stop the expedition for two days. We thought the whole thing was over. Alex got well away from us. By the time we did reach the South Pole, he was five days in front. And, yeah, we resigned our fact to the, ourselves to the fact that, hey, we can't keep trying to fight this Norwegian bloke uh, and, and the conditions down here. We've got to just stay focused on what we're doing and trying to get through this environment, not focusing on, on what Alex is doing. And at about this point, the two of us found ourselves starting to talk on the satellite phone every few weeks, start to collaborate and an empathy built in between the two of us and that, that he was the only person on the planet that really understood what we were going through and vice versa. And so a bit of a bond kind of built on that back end of the expedition. And then incredibly, uh, on the final day of the expedition, as we start skiing down to where we started to, and we looked like we we're going to pull this thing off, uh, there was Alex waiting three kilometres short of the finish line so we could all finish this mammoth expedition all together. And it was... It was just such a beautiful end to such a big expedition. You know, on the on the Tasman crossing, we had over 25,000 people on the beach to greet us in. All the major networks around the world were there in helicopters, and it was just a big, fat party. Here it was an absolute stadium of silence, and it was just so incredibly powerful um, sharing that moment with Alex and, you know, and, and just seeing what, I guess, collaboration, supporting other people as opposed to just fighting for your own personal glory can actually achieve in life sometimes. Uh, it's an awesome, awesome sub-story to what you did. And uh, I imagine you're still in contact with Alex. 100%, oh, yeah. Oh, my or, God, friend for life. Friend for life and just this common understanding and this bond. You know, we, we had this shared experience and he always said to us guys, you know, 
a victory a victory on your own is quite shallow. It's much it's much nicer to celebrate life's little victories with other people, and that's exactly what he did. And it was it's very much taught taught me a lot about business and a lot about life. Here's a money-making tip from American Express member and Four Pillars Gin founder, Stu Greger. I, for the life of me, don't understand why a business won't accept Amex because what you're potentially doing is knocking back customers who want to spend money on your product or your brand or your service or whatever it is. And I frankly don't understand it. If someone wants to give me their Amex and buy 10 bottles of gin, I tell you what, I'll take their Amex, thanks very much. You're potentially also denying yourself a big chunk of corporate business as well. You know, because a lot of sales guys, a lot of guys, I know me, in my own business, I use Amex, and if I get a, a if I ring to make a booking at a restaurant or a bar or something, I say, "Do you accept Amex?" and they say, "No," I go somewhere else. So they don't even know the business they're, they're missing out on. It beggars belief, and I often find myself having these com- rather awkward conversations at the <laughs> with with a shopkeeper or a, or a bar owner or a restaurateur, saying, "Why wouldn't you take it? I'll pay you the extra. I'll pay one and a half. Oh, the credit card service fee or whatever you want. Take my money." It's business one hundred and one, really. Make it easy for people to give you money. Speaking of money, the American Express Business Explorer credit card comes with 50,000 bonus points every year, a low interest rate, and two points on every dollar you spend. Not to mention a couple of tickets to the very swish Amex Lounge at Sydney International Airport. Search Amex Business to find out more. New American Express card members only. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Show, and we're chatting with adventurer James Kostrician. What have you learned about yourself? I've learned that we're capable of a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. And in a lot of ways, we're like a hardcore four-wheel drive, um, just driving around the city streets uh, with the two kids in the back seat all day, every day, and that we are actually capable of a lot more than we th- than we realise. And I guess that's what these expeditions were all about for me. It was seeing what I was capable of as a human being and could I do more than what I thought I was destined to do. And, um, you know, the satisfaction and understanding you get of yourself by pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. And the only way you can learn that stuff about yourself is by pushing yourself. And uh, I guess a lot of the listeners would be experiencing that in business. You know, business does push all of us to the absolute limit in different parts of our character and personality. And in in some sick, masochistic way, that's kind of what attracts us to it. Search Amex Business to find out how your business can uh, be rewarded by using an Amex card. Uh, listeners, we are having a chat with, I'm going to call him a mad-ass adventurer, James Castrician. <laughs> uh, he's been on two incredible adventures, as you've already heard. Uh, I think it's now time to talk business, James, and, and how you've taken those two incredible stories and turn them into business. And I guess there's two aspects to that. There's the raising money to finance the adventures, and then there is making money from the adventures once complete. So can we start with raising money? Uh, I'm I'm guessing you developed a pretty thick skin in approaching sponsors. Yeah, look, the approaching sponsors and getting the funding for these projects was in a lot of ways more difficult than the actual expedition itself. You know, you're heading out there down to Antarctica for a cold camping holiday with your best mate for a few months. In a lot of ways, that was the easy part. It was raising close to half a million dollars to pull off each trip. So when you're in your early 20s and you're faced with that daunting task, it can almost seem insurmountable and impossible. And initially, we thought quite naively, hey, we're doing something completely amazing and cool and inspiring. Why don't 
you just, you know, we'll go to a Surely everyone sponsor. wants to throw yeah, hundred million, you know, half a million bucks at you. Give, give us some money and, uh, you know, we'll all be mates and we'll all have a great time and this nope. will just be fantastic. Nope. And after, it was literally 180 rejections. Uh, we did, we hadn't had one sponsor on board. We got 180 rejections. We realized that that probably wasn't going to cut it for us. Are you serious? 180 and, rejections, not one sponsor. Yeah, yeah, we got pretty good at doing it. Well, I mean, we we're used to that with girls, so we're pretty used to rejection <laughs> at, by this point. So we just dealt with it the same way, really. And uh, But no, the one thing we did do, and we didn't do this with girls, but we did this with sponsorship. We did actually ask the, the prospective sponsor. We said, hey, can you please give us three things we could have done better or three things that would have made our, our pitch more appealing? And so when you've got 180 rejections and you've got three pieces of advice from every person, that starts to put you in a bit more of a bit more of an understanding of what sponsors are potentially looking for. Can, can I just be um, challenge you on it? Which I think it's a brilliant question to ask. Yeah. But did you have to wait for 108? You had to ask that question 180 times to get 540 pieces of advice before you actually got it right. Why didn't you get it right? So after initially, the- we went the splattergram. Uh, we just uh, found every marketing at um, you know so-and-so-company.com.au, and we just spent sent all these proposals out to all these different companies, same pitch, same generic proposal, same cover letter. Like it was just it was just throwing it out there, playing the numbers game almost. Uh, and, yeah, and so that's why that all happened so quickly before we started getting that feedback back. And then once it all started coming back on, we realized that every prospective sponsor could benefit from a different return on investment. And what the... I guess what our skill needed to be was identifying what each sponsor wanted or could potentially want from the expedition and delivering and designing a sponsorship package around exactly what it was that they wanted. So some sponsors wanted internal initiatives to help build staff morale, teamwork, things for their staff to talk about around the water cooler. And so that package was very, very different to a a potential sponsor that wanted above-the-line advertising, uh, branding all over the kayak or or the sled, um, and yeah, media exposure. And so it was about finding what a particular sponsor wanted and designing a whole package around that. Interesting. Um, a past guest a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Banks, one of the sharks on Shark Tank, had similar advice when managing people, which is there's an assumption that everyone just wants more money. Now, whilst more money is good, actually the, the, the good boss, the good business owner will ask their employees, what's going to do it for you? You know, is it is it having Fridays off? Is it being able to pick your kids up from school? Is it, you know, what, what is it? So similar thing, right? Same theory. 100%. It's collaborating with that potential partner rather than it being, uh, he, he, here's the answer and, and he, here's this one stock approach that we've never spoken to you before. We don't know what you want, but um, I'm sure you're going to love it. So you got pretty skilled at it. Who was the first sponsor that came on board on on the New Zealand adventure? I guess with these expeditions, gear sponsorship is quite easy to yes, come by. Yes. So North um, Face, you know, uh, North Face went on board at that point. So we had Icebreaker, uh, we had um, yeah Sunto watches, everything down to our twenty kilos of almonds that came from South Australia was sponsored. Um, you know, our backcountry meals, all our you know, every every bit of gear was easy, easy, easy to come by. It was more the funding that we needed to actually construct and build the kayak. Uh, that's where things got more challenging, and that's yeah. where these sponsors needed it to be. And so our first real sponsor uh, was Unwired. Um, I don't know if you remember Unwired, Tim, about 10 years ago when um, yeah, wireless internet wasn't really a thing, mm. and, and we all had to plug in hard with those ethernet ports. Unwired had um, these little 
devices that would sit in people's offices or home offices that would give um, yeah, Wi-Fi in a room. Cool. Uh, that would still need to be plugged in. And, uh, and so they were kind of first to market 10, 12 years ago with that. And uh, uh, back in 2006, I was reading a BRW article on their CEO at the time, David Spence, who was a mad keen sailor, loved the ocean, and had a whole everything he was saying in this article about innovation, about uh, yeah, uh, being a first mover and trying things new. I was like, right, I have to get in front of this guy. And as soon as we did, we connected straight away. And and, and I've I found that with sponsorship of this podcast as well. Um, whilst you can reach out to all many number of businesses who want to get in front of small business owners, the real success I have is when I found someone within a business and a brand that I'd like to partner with, but also either my ideal situation is they've actually listened to the show before, um, yep. or they're at least a fan of podcasts and see the potential of this fantastic medium. <clears throat> because when you get someone like that, it's it, it's a warm intro. They're excited to be in front of you. You're excited to be in front of them, and you can get straight into the detail. 100%. 100%. Yep. I love it. So um, you get your sponsors on board for both these trips. What was the trick? Because getting them on board is one thing, and it's hard. Managing them is another, I guess. Did you have someone back home as a kind of communications, marketing, team support person who was managing sponsors, or were you doing that yourself? We were kind of all doing it ourselves and things on were. the Tasman <laughs> just kind of blew out of proportion when we find ourselves finally found ourselves out on the on the journey itself. And so there was a whole lot of media scrutiny in the lead up given that there had been the disappearance of Andrew and there's a lot of discussion mm. around whether we should be in fact allowed to be out there and putting our lives and other people's lives at risk potentially if we needed to get rescued. And so there was a lot of, I guess, negative media at the time before our departure. When we got out there, an incredible online community formed um, on our forum um, where hundreds and hundreds uh, of people were posting almost daily uh, up following our progress. Uh, people were sitting up through the night when we had those challenging moments happen. And by the end, um, yeah, we had literally had hundreds of thousands of people visit our website and follow our progress or, uh, but, across the journey. But what about, uh, more to the point, managing sponsors' expe expectations when you are out adventuring? Um, do they just leave you alone with some sponsors? You, know, you don't want to name names here um, in case you do a third crazy adventure. But um, were some sponsors more demanding than others? Definitely. Look, the best sponsors were the ones where it was a real relationship and a real partnership. Some sponsors and nothing wrong with agencies, but the ones that seemed to go through agencies seemed a lot more clinical yeah. and a lot more by the dot point. Totally. And once, it, you know, once the boxes were ticked, that was the end of the relationship. Whereas um, with people like David Spence and a lot of our other sponsors, it, it almost felt like a um, a friendship, family or relationship by the end. You know, they flew across to New Zealand to welcome us in. Um, they they partied with us. They celebrated with us. It was a real kind of team effort as opposed to it just being a clinical contractual relationship. I totally hear you, mate. And and I, um, as you know, I, I looked after the, the adventurer Jesse Martin in a previous life. And, and likewise, if, they, if our sponsors had come through agencies, then it was a much more clinical. Uh, they, they didn't care, really. They were just no. looking for a return on their investment, um, yep. whereas the sponsors that were direct – that had some skin in the game, that were really into what you were doing for whatever reason. It might be because they, they wanted their kids to meet you or because they wanted to do that themselves when they were your age but never got the opportunity. You don't know. Yep. But, but finding out is a pretty good thing to do. 
you know, ask him what, why, 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 why the interest in us? Yep. Yep. Uh, it's all in the questions. So, okay. So you've raised your sponsorship money. That's tough. You've managed your sponsors. That's tough, but you got through and it's all good. Now you're at the other side of those two adventures, James, and yep. I'm particularly interested in how you've turned that into a business. Um, clearly speaking for you, keynote speaking, um, you've got a business in that. That's where I met you. Um, did yep. that just come about? How did how did speaking come about? There's a lot of speakers out there. That's a funny one. So we were paddling. I didn't even know the industry existed 12 years ago. So Jones and I are paddling along in that last week coming into New Zealand. We we literally did not have a set of clothes in New Zealand waiting for us. We you know we just wanted to get to New Zealand alive, and then life would start again for us when we got to that point. And so we arrived in New Zealand to this big fanfare. We, I didn't want to go back to life as an accountant. Jonesy didn't want to go back to working as exercise physiologist. And so we weren't quite sure what we were going to do. And with the big reception that we got, we were fortunate enough to um, score a book deal and, and a documentary deal. And through our website, there were a whole lot of inquiries for us to go and speak to these audiences. And we're like, oh, this will be awesome. We'll do this for like the next three or four months and that will get us on our feet. And then we can, that'll just give us a bit more time to just figure out what we're going to do with the next few years of our life. And uh, I guess that started the speaking business um, that, I, that I have today. And uh, I've been fortunate enough now to speak in uh, now about 26 different countries, um, close to 500,000 people over the last 12 years. And it's just been so amazing to travel around the world, sharing stories, anecdotes, and things that I've learned from these adventures with different teams around the world. Well, I can, and look, anyone listening who uh, needs an inspirational speaker, um, I've seen James speak. What I love about your keynote, James, is um, it's very, you, you immerse yourself in it. Um, you've got footage supporting all the different stories you tell, which is pretty cool. I mean, you've got a story of meeting Alex um, three kilometres out from finishing the Antarctic adventure. You've got a you've got footage of the shark bumping up against the kayak um, on your way across the lake, and you know it's that that's fantastic. You've crafted great stories. I know you're wanting to take it to the next level, but um, yeah, it, it's it's wonderful, mate, and it's um it, it's great. It's amazing that it's an industry, isn't it? I remember that feeling as well when I got into it about six years ago and gone really. This is a whole business that I can create. I can just go yeah. around to conferences and speak. My goodness. I, I had no idea, no <laughs> idea. And it just, it, it built and built. And you know, these days I still spend a lot of time presenting. Uh, but I must admit kind of uh, probably about four or five years ago, as much as I was loving the keynote speaking, I've, I kind of got to a point where I just, I wanted to do more with teams and particularly corporate teams than, than I was doing uh, in a conference room. And I've obviously got this love of adventure and I wanted to get out there and share adventure with the world. And that's where I guess my adventure group came in. So that's your current business. What is it? Yeah. So essentially, uh, it's a very niche, specialized business taking corporate teams out on adventure-based programs. So often uh, we'll get incentive groups. So, you know, in the incentive market, um, flashy businesses, send people around the world to the most amazing places. But a lot of these top top executives and people that have done well in business, they know what the front of a plane looks like. They know what a nice bottle of wine is. They know what a nice meal is. 
if you just keep on giving them same old, same old, it's just the same old stuff. And so we give them these incredibly unique adventure experiences in a beautiful glamping camp. And so we do have all the luxury side of things in the glamping camp, but then through the day we give people a memorable experience, which is pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. It's throwing them in canyons, off the side of cliffs, up cliffs, down cliffs, and uh, and they often get to the end of these programs just you know, discovering that little piece about themselves that they didn't know previously and that little bit about their team that um, came out through just a real authentic experience. A school camp for corporates. What what have you, I mean, that's a serious business now. Uh, what have you learned from running your own business? Infinitely more. <laughs> than, so, uh, every day is a learning curve and a, a learning experience. And I guess that's what I'm finding the challenge in life being now. And that's what I'm absolutely loving. Uh, so, uh, what was the question again, Tim? Well, I guess what learning? have you learned from running your own business? Because um, it, it's um, it's a, that's a serious business. I mean, there's a lot of considerations, put it, let alone um, liabilities and insurance for a business like that. But actually, getting customers. Are, are you? You're a pretty humble guy. Are you trading off your name and your past experience in order to get clients for your, my my adventure group? That's an interesting one because you're right. I don't like trading on my name. Uh, a lot of it does come through the keynote speaking and the people that I do mm. know um, in, in the high end of town. Having said that, though, the product itself stands alone on itself now. And initially, I didn't have – it hadn't been tested. I didn't know whether the product would actually float with corporate teams in Australia. And so it was a matter of throwing it out there, seeing what would stick and seeing what people did actually enjoy and get a lot out of. And, uh, you know, three and a half years on from when the business first started, we're very much at the point now where the product and the experience speaks for itself. And I'm just an add on to that rather than it being an integral part of who I am. That's interesting. I, I, um, I would have thought that, um, you, you know, your name and your experience would have been at the forefront of the market. As you say, it's got, it's got traction now. The, the other part of that is definitely, and I said this to you off air a couple of days ago, which was, um, speaking at conferences is going to be your best marketing. A past guest on this show, he's been on three times actually, Daniel Flynn from Thank You Water and the Thank You Group. Um, he speaks at a lot of conferences and he always goes in with that attitude that there will be someone in that audience who has the ability to either employ him for his next talk, um, resource an idea that he's got, um, introduce him to someone who's got a bottling plant for his next bottle, whatever it is, but he yep. goes in. So it's, it's pretty amazing, really, because he's getting paid and he gets paid a good dollar to, to provide a keynote at a conference. But really, for him, it's a way of marketing his brand and his business. So um, you're, and you're in that same boat. And look, I think with any good keynote, uh, a huge part of a, a decent delivery is authenticity and actually getting a real sense of the values and what the person stands for. And so if you can share that with an audience and there's some people in that audience that connect with, with who you are and what you stand for, it definitely – it's a lot easier to take the next conversation about a My Adventure Group program uh, from there rather than a cold call or starting from scratch. James, what's Jonesy up to these days, mate? So Jonesy, either uh, so both of us after the Taz or after Antarctica, both got married. We've now got families. Jonesy married an American girl, amazing girl that uh, they spend a lot of their time in the US and a bit of time here back in Australia as well. So Jonesy's got his speaking business, and uh, him and his wife and child actually did a big expedition all together last year. Where'd they go? Family trip. So from uh, the middle of Australia down to the bottom of Australia. Uh, Yeah, they, they they walked the whole way. 
Yeah, why not? Why yeah. not? Hey, uh, great story. Great business learnings, James. Where can people find out more about you? So to find out more about me, the My Adventure Group business or the speaking stuff, jump onto myadventuregroup.com.au. Uh, there's plenty of cool stuff on there, heaps of videos um, and, yeah, much more information. James, thank you, buddy. I'm feeling incredibly guilty right now, so I'm heading out for a walk. <laughs> I think I should too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Tim. Well, there you go, team. James Castrician. <laughs> I trust you picked up a tip or 10. I certainly did. Um, I'm going to put a link, or not a link, I'll actually embed a couple of James's videos over in the show notes. Just You can actually see his madness of paddling and walking through white, basically, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 430. Be sure to hang around after my top three attention grabbers as I give some rather sage advice to a cafe owner who's on the verge of giving up. But right now, my top three attention grabbers from that chat with James Kastrician, thanks to our great mates at American Express. Attention grabber number one, preparation is everything. Uh, I certainly don't know about you, but when I put great effort into preparing, whether it be for a meeting, a keynote, a podcast episode, I'm always going to get a better result, right? It's those little one percenters that make all the difference. Uh, I watched James preparing for his keynote in Vietnam. He was attending to the one percenters, and as a result, great keynote. Preparation is everything. Attention grabber number two, find people who love what you do. I like this one, like James did in finding the sponsors, finally, after how many uh, rejections. That's a lesson in itself, right? Have a thick skin. Uh, rejection is a step closer to a yes, right? Um, playing to the light was that also a similar tip from Marty Vids in last week's episode. Finding people who love what you do, those people in the light, and giving them more of what you do, and they will love you for it and talk about you to others. Attention grabber number three, we're all capable of more. I love James's four-wheel drive analogy, how there's all these four-wheel drives driving around the city using like 10% of what they're actually able to do. And I think we are all like that. So dig deep, guys, and find what you are truly, truly capable of. I think we'll all surprise ourselves. Love to know what grabbed your attention. Head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 430. Leave me a comment. Righto, I reckon it's time for a listener question, uh, and this one is from Suman. He says, "Hi Tim, hi Suman. I'm your, I'm your big, I'm your big fan. <laughs> Great, I've just got one, and I listen to your podcast every day. Wherever I'm, whenever I'm down, or if my business is not working well, I listen to your podcast, and it motivates me to push more. My question for you is: I have a small cafe, and currently it's not running well, kind of breaking even, only." In front of my cafe, there is an old cafe where people line up, I'm assuming that's across the road, and it's always busy. How can I compete with them? Should I give up, sell the cafe, or should I make some changes and put some strategy in place and compete with them? What would be your advice? How can I improve my cafe sales? Well, firstly, Suman, thank you for the question, and mate, I feel for you. Good on you for listening to this show. Good on you for seeking information from others. I like that, and good on you for writing in. Here is what I would do. Stop looking across the road. Run your own race. Don't look at what the competitors are doing. That just makes you miserable if they're doing really well. And have you considered that those lining up may not like lining up? I don't know many people who like queues. So consider offering an express service 
and go and tell the people in the line about it. That would be cheeky, or at least put up a good sign across the road so they can see it. Um, I would ask your current customers what they love and don't love about your cafe. Ask the hard questions, buddy. And you don't have to action everything they say, but if you find trends, if you hear trends developing, then do put take action and do let them see that you're making changes based on their recommendations. Another thing, I do provide samples of your food and drinks with customers. I was at a cafe this week where um, one of the waiting staff came up and gave me a little shot glass of a particular health drink she'd made, let me try another type of coffee. It was all kind of really interesting. And as a result, I bought more than I would have normally. Um, Another thing I do is be known for one thing well. Now, that could be a great customer experience. You would have heard me talk about customer experience before. Maybe you could be known for the best egg and bacon roll in town or whatever whatever that one dish is where you become the destination for it. Or you could become known as the place to do business or the place to bring kids or the whatever it may be. Do one thing really well and you will get talked about. Another thing I do, run information evenings with local travel agents, health practitioners, fashion shops. Put on events. Be the venue for local events and embed yourself into the community, Suman. Two more things before we let you go. Look at your cafe as if you were a customer. Ask yourself the hard question, would you buy from you? Would you eat from you? Would you be happy to sit in that environment? When I was the marketing manager at Flight Center, I would always take my shop staff out of the shop, ask them to walk back into the shop as a customer and look around and say, hey, is this the kind of place that I would like to do business? And finally, a wacky idea, break a Guinness World Record like past guest Arthur Greeno did. He owned a Chick-fil-A franchise in the States and he he broke two Guinness World Records. One was a giant iced tea, got all the community involved and got a mountain load of publicity. Suman, don't lose faith, faith, don't lose faith, Suman, don't lose faith, brother, and keep going. At some point, yeah, you might have to cut, cut the cafe free and move on, but try some new things and see how they work. Righto, time for the jingle of the week. How's your Greek? <laughs> About as good as mine? Suvlaki, Moussaka, that's about the extent of my Greek language speaking. Well, the fact that most Aussies can't speak a word of this beautiful language didn't stop Melbourne furniture retailer Franco Cotto in the 1980s from asking us to buy from him in Greek on TV. Grand style, grand style, grand style. Where in Brunswick and Futsgrave, Franco Cotto have the pleasure to present to you Il Modernissimo. Bedroom suites, dining room, and wonderful lounge. Why don't you come for yourself and have a look at this magnifico, il modernissimo, only can found from Franco Gozzo dove andare. Dove? A Branzicchi and Footscribe. Comprate da Franco Gozzo. Bravo, bravo. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I think that's Italian, not Greek. Oh, I love that ad. I grew up with that ad. Franco be- became quite the celebrity off the back of that TV commercial, by the way. I'm pretty sure if you speak to anyone in Melbourne over the age of 40, they'll be able to recite at least part of it. And, and what a brave move from a business point of view, spending his hard-earned cash on a TV ad spoken in broken English and Greek. You know, maybe more of us should take a risk or two when marketing our own beautiful businesses, Right. Maybe we'd call this the risk episode because of what James has shared with us, what Franco did with his crazy ad in the 1980s. 
What risk could you take that's calculated and may lead to greatness? You can watch that full ad over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 430. And if there's a jingle you reckon worthy of this segment, then let me know via Twitter at Timbo Reed, R-E-I-D. Well, that almost wraps up another episode of your favourite marketing podcast. Next week, we'll catch up with the bloke who owns the barber shop I go to in Noosa. He's a self-confessed weapon when it comes to creating an amazing customer experience. Don't forget there's an entire back catalogue of interviews over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com along with a transcription of every interview. Big thanks to American Express for sponsoring this episode. Remember you can search now, Amex Business, to find out how your business expenses can reward you. And it's pretty exciting when the penny drops on that one. If you love the Small Business Big Marketing Show, then let another business owner know about it by grabbing their phone and downloading it for them. Until next week, I am Timbo Reid. Thanks for tuning in. May your marketing be the best marketing. Bye for now.